following audio is from St Nick's Durham. As a church, we exist to love God, love people and love Durham. We hope that this sermon will serve you well as a supplement to your regular Bible reading, prayer and participation in your local church. For more information about St Nick's Durham, directions or resources, please visit stnicks.org.uk. The reading this evening is taken from the book of Nehemiah, chapter 5. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their Jewish brothers. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to, to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, we have had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our countrymen, and though our sons are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you are exacting usury from your own countrymen. So I called them together, a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as possible, we have bought back our Jewish brothers who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your brothers only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. So I continued, what you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain, but let the exacting of usury stop. Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves and houses, and also the usury you are charging them the hundredth part of the money, grain, new wine and oil. We will give it back, they said, and we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. Then I summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. I also shook out the folds of my robe and said, in this way may God shake out of his house and possessions every man who does not keep this promise so may such a man be shaken out and emptied. At this the whole assembly said Amen and praised the Lord, and the people did as they had promised. Moreover, from the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, until his thirty-second year, twelve years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor. But the earlier governors, those preceding me, placed a heavy burden on the people and took 40 shekels of silver from them in addition to food and wine. Their assistants also lorded it over the people, but out of reverence for God I did not act like that. Instead I devoted myself to the work on this wall. All my men were assembled there for the work. We did not acquire any land. Furthermore, 150 Jews and officials ate at my table as well as those who came to us from the surrounding nations. Each day, one ox, six choice sheep and some poultry 
were prepared for me, and every ten days an abundant supply of wine of all kinds. In spite of all of this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor, because the demands were heavy on these people. Remember me with favour, O oh my God, for all I have done for these people. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hello. It's very good to be sharing together in our studies of Nehemiah. And tonight we come to chapter five. But let's start first with a prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word and we pray that through your Holy Spirit, it might become living and powerful for each one of us. We ask this in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. I thought I'd start by giving you a summary of what this ancient text might be saying to us in our generation. I'm sure there's lots of options here, but this is mine. It is that as Christians, we are called to care, see to see, for our families and friends, for our neighbours, for the church family, and for the wider community in Durham and further afield. Called to care if I'm at school, if I'm a student, if I lead a hectic, busy life in middle age. Called to care even when I'm slowing down in later years. Called to care especially for those in difficulty and need, those unable to repay, see to see. And I can't resist a special word to those fanatically fit cyclists among us for whom sea to sea means the coast to coast cycle route. I know you're out there. I hope that from today, every time you pass those impressive metal signs with sea to sea on them, you will think not only of coast to coast, but also of called to care, a key part of your and my calling as followers of Jesus Christ. It's interesting that when James the Apostle defines true religion for us, he tells us that it's about looking after orphans and widows in their distress, alongside living a pure life. And it was this call to care that led the early church to appoint specially commissioned uh, members, we might call them deacons, to look after those in particular need. Our context may be different, but the underlying calling is timeless, see to see. When we care for, when we show practical love for any in need, we reflect Jesus to our world. It is part of Jesus's calling to us all, love one another as I have loved you. And we follow the example of someone who loved me and gave himself for me. So there you have it. We are called to care, see to see. And the wonderful thing is that there is much blessing and joy that comes from that caring. Now the need around us is overwhelming. And we know that as a church and as individuals, we can't meet every need there is. Sometimes we have to make hard choices as I think Jesus did in his earthly ministry. So we all need the Spirit's wisdom, collectively and individually, to work out God's priorities for us. 
But let our underlying attitude of heart, our disposition, if you like, still be based on C to C. And I know only too well that I need to hear that call again and again. So now, at last, uh, we come to Nehemiah 5. I thought we'd look briefly at the challenge faced by Nehemiah and his fellow Judaites. Then we'll look at Nehemiah's responses. And finally, I thought I'd just say a little about what this story might mean for how we view our economic system today and our role in it. I hope everything I say will help us to be better at C to C. So first then, the challenge. There's some debate about where verses 1 to 13 uh, fit chronologically. Was it, for example, during the rebuilding of the walls or just after it? Given where these verses are placed, it makes sense, I think, to see the narrative as part of the rebuilding story, perhaps towards the end of the story. Now, in chapter four, those rebuilding the wall faced opposition from Sanballat and Tobiah, two rather unsavoury characters. These two did all they could to stop the rebuilding, rubbishing those involved, jeering at their work, stirring up trouble, external opposition, if you like, from outside. But through Nehemiah's leadership and skill and passion and the commitment of the community, it was overcome. But now in chapter five, there is a very different threat. This time it's not external, but internal. It's from within the community, from major internal tensions and problems. It's a threat that is just as serious as the one from Sanballat and Tobiah, perhaps more so. This internal threat made me think of the rebuilding that will need to go on here at St Nick's once the COVID restrictions are lifted. Let's always pray for unity within our fellowship so that we are able to rebuild well together and our witness to Christ can flourish. And perhaps a key element in fostering this unity is about learning to stand in the shoes of others. So what was the problem? Ordinary families were suffering terrible economic hardship in a time of famine. Perhaps it was made worse by their commitment to rebuilding the wall. That meant that many men were unable to work what land they had in the usual way. Some members of the community were starving, unable to feed their families. They lacked even the basics for survival. Some had to mortgage food, uh, mortgage everything just to get some food. Some had had to borrow money to pay their taxes to the king. Some had even to sell their sons and daughters into servitude to stay alive. And there's some hint that the selling of daughters here has sexual overtones. Just imagine how it must have been for the parents. And the problem is not deprivation of the finer things in life, it is absence of the very basics needed for survival. These families were in a dreadful situation, completely powerless. Yet others in the same community, fellow Jews, as verse one puts it, 
were enjoying the good life. They used their economic power to sustain their lifestyles. They were relatively insulated from the harsh realities faced by their poverty-stricken brothers and sisters. They were actually causing the hardship and benefiting from it. Not a lot of C to C here. We learn a few verses later that interest was being charged on the lending of money and in kind, probably around 12% a year. This interest rate was imposing impossible additional burdens on the most destitute members of the community. Now the charging of interest is a topic that has attracted a lot of debate over the centuries. But at the very least, we can say that in the circumstances of Nehemiah 5, it was simply wrong. The Torah seems pretty clear on this. And the issue here is not so much the legitimacy or otherwise of charging interest. It is the oppression of the poor. In the face of all this, those who are suffering explode. They cannot remain silent. There is a great outcry, as verse 1 puts it. As I read this account, my thoughts turned to some of the deprivation that still exists on our own doorstep. It may not be at the Nehemiah level, but it is still pretty grim. The Food Foundation, for example, recently reported that 2.3 million children, 2.3 million, were in the 12% of families where adults were going without food because of a shortage of money. Food banks in the Trussell network distributed almost a million emergency food parcels to children in the latest year. So what of Nehemiah's response? He is very angry. This situation should not have existed. But did you notice that he still takes his time deciding how to respond? He ponders, he thinks about it, but then he tells it straight to the nobles and officials who've been taking advantage of things, who have used their economic power to exploit the vulnerable, exploiting members of their own community. Nehemiah couldn't be clearer. What you are doing is not right, he says in verse nine. He doesn't hold back. They were in effect selling their own people, even bringing themselves disgrace in the eyes of the Babylonians. As I read the passage and listened to their instant positive reaction to Nehemiah's accusations, I did wonder how aware those exploiting the poor were of what they were actually doing. Might they have been so socially distant from the suffering that they hadn't grasped the full effect of their actions, the scale of the deprivation they were inflicting? I raise this question because I know how isolated I can be from the reality of life for those struggling to get the basics. So Nehemiah tells it as it is, but he's also willing to put up his own hand. Verses 10 to 11. He is guilty too. His leadership means acknowledging his own part in the exploitation. Now it's not a mark of weakness to acknowledge failings. It's a sign of integrity and it points to a way forward. He undertakes to do what he's asking others to do. He's not an armchair theorist. Nehemiah also led by example in other ways. 
verses 14 to 18, tell us that he didn't take up his own entitlements of office as a governor because of the burdens it would have placed on his fellow Jews. Instead, he shows free, lavish hospitality to others out of his own pocket. And I suspect that it was because of his leadership by practical example that the problems are resolved and C to C prevails. Those in positions of economic power stop their exploitation of the vulnerable and weak. The rebuilding is completed. I love the end of verse 13. The whole assembly said, Amen, and praise the Lord, and the people did as they had promised. What a result! A vicar's dream! And Nehemiah has played a key role in it all. I think this is a call for us to pray for our leaders. Their wisdom and practical example is so important for all of us and the work of the kingdom. So Nehemiah's response, passionate, clear and straight, ready to acknowledge his own failings, leading by example. Now I'd like to finish by saying something about our own economic system and how we might look at it as Christians against the background of Nehemiah 5 and the failure of the economy that day to provide care for those in dire need. Now the interface between faith and economics is a vast subject on which there is a vast literature and I have only two or three minutes. But I think I would want to start by first giving thanks. Thanks for all that is good in our economic system as it coordinates the decisions of millions of consumers and workers to provide so much of what we need in life. Thanks for the skills and energy and innovation and entrepreneurship that serve the common good. The clothes we're wearing, the homes we live in, the food we eat are all the product of thousands of decisions behind the scenes. Yet we have little idea of this complex coordination activity when we purchase. It is mostly hidden from us. Think of the humble loaf of bread on the supermarket shelf, for example. It boasts of hundreds of interactions in its production and delivery. Yet we mostly take all of this for granted as we put it in our trolley. If you find it difficult to acknowledge or give thanks for the providential benefits of the market system, do take a look sometime at some of the writings of Pope John Paul II. At the same time, we also know that there is much that is wrong with the system. As the families in Nehemiah 5 knew only too well, you need money to be a participant. So there are many who are still short of the very basics of life, who worry about where the next meal or clothing for the children is coming from. Monopoly power is often exploited and those without economic power suffer, as in Nehemiah 5. And we think of those goods and services that the market delivers that are ugly and sordid and damaging to the consumer and others, 
all a long way from sea to sea. It's against the back that the background of that mixed picture that we're all challenged to play our part in bringing in God's kingdom into the economic sphere. And perhaps a good way into this challenge is to remember that the economic system doesn't exist in an ethical vacuum. The outcomes it produces reflect the moral framework within which it operates. And as Christians, we can have a key role in setting that framework, just as Nehemiah did in chapter five. We would surely want to say that economic activity is not an end in itself, but is there to enable God's good creation to flourish and to meet need freely and generously. God has given us all the resources we need to fulfill our sea to sea mission. So perhaps tonight we have an opportunity to reimagine our own role in the economic system as those who seek God's kingdom first, being Christ's followers in our decisions and activities as customers, as workers at whatever level, as those who have a voice in the public square and being followers of Christ in the way we behave as stewards of the resources we've been given and as those who are called to care. Amen. Thank you for listening to the St Nick's Durham podcast. If you would like to hear more sermons and teaching like this, then subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about St Nick's, visit our website at stnicks.org.uk.